Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We are in Ottawa, Ontario with a different episode for you today. Normally we are nearly live, but here's an episode that we did live uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had a crowd, a bit of an audience. It was certainly not for me. It was part of Beth Robertson's book launch for Science of the Seance, Transnational Networks and Gendered Bodies in the Study of Psychic Phenomena, 1918 to 1940. This was actually the release of the paperback version. The hard copy came out in 2016. And, and Beth and I actually shared an office this semester at Carleton, and we would be in there on Tuesday afternoons. And, and I asked her a few months ago if she would want to come on the podcast to talk about the book and she had this great idea of why don't we do a live version of the podcast to go along with the book launch and have a different energy to it. So I'm really pleased with the way it turned out. There's some ambient noise throughout the episode, the coffee machine, the door opening and closing as people came in. The The location where we were was Black Squirrel Books in old Ottawa South on Bank Street. So it was open. So there was people around us through the whole thing. I think Beth and my voices are pretty clear through the show. We do open it up for questions at, at one point. A couple of the questions are a little hard to hear. I tried to amplify them and clear them up as much as I could. So I apologize if those aren't, aren't as clear as perhaps they, they could be. But we tried our best to, to ensure that everyone had a chance to ask questions. And uh, we're thankful for the people at Black Squirrel for, for having us. It was a miserable, rainy night. Uh, here in Ottawa, as so many nights this spring have been. But I'm pleased that we got such a great turnout for for the book launch. And uh, and, and it, was a, it was a fun night. I really enjoyed the conversation with Beth. And we would encourage you to check out the book. So without any further ado, here is the discussion that we had at Black Squirrel Books with Beth Robertson. Okay, so we are here at the book launch of Science of the Seance, Transnational Networks and Gendered Bodies in the Study of Psychic Phenomenon 1918 to 1940 with the author Beth Robertson. Beth, welcome. Thank you. And we should know we're here with, with people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, first time we've ever had a, a crowd for a, a podcast because of Beth. So, uh, so congratulations. This is the paperback launch. The hardcover's been out for a while now because the official date was 2016. So getting to paperback, always exciting. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. So for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the, the book, Science of the Seance, I mean, people I think know I, generally what a seance is, but how are you approaching this, the, the topic, and what generally is the book about? Ah, that's a, uh, without boring you, um, <laughs> um, it's... It's essentially looking at uh, the seance, if everyone's familiar, maybe from high school, like joining your hands and lighting candles around a Ouija board. Well, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, it was about the, a moment in time where people um, had been taking it more seriously. Um, and it was probably the last push to try and make the scientific study of paranormal phenomenon into an actual science. Um, as opposed to a religious phenomenon. Um, and it was just before J.B. Rhyme, if anyone remembers his name, at Duke University he set up this kind of parapsychology laboratory. Um, so it was just before he was about to launch that. And um, 
yeah, so it's kind of like this this kind of key niche moment um, in which kind of a lot of things are happening, and and it can take and it could have taken multiple directions. So this book is, in many ways, kind of tries to look, and it takes a very kind of narrow focus of looking at a, a set of actors, a set of individuals who communicated and shared experimental methods and technologies and even spirits across borders uh, from Britain to the US to Canada. And why, I mean, 1918, so the end of the First World War, and. In, in teaching about pop culture, I've talked about how people are consumed by death in, in that moment. So is that related to why this interest comes up starting around that time, that, that people have gone through the, the death and now want to deal with that in some way? Is that part of the process? Uh, yeah, you can't yeah, deny that that is part of the issue. Actually, one of the, kind of the key people in this book, uh, Dr. Thomas Glendening, Glendening Hamilton, in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, he was one of the head physicians during the um, uh, the, the influenza epidemic uh, shortly after the war. And one of, arguably, at least one of the reasons why he started, or what kind of begins, may, or might have begun his interest, is uh, his. So actually, while he was a physician uh, caring for people, he actually brought the influenza strand back with him home, and his young son ended up. Uh, toddler ended up dying as a result uh, from, from influenza and at least if not him it was definitely like a driver for his wife uh, to become more interested in that but then it becomes I guess my critique of a lot of the studies in this era uh, that have been done is usually people kind of say well it's just because of it's just because of the war and because of um, because of this moment, and that's the only reason why people are interested in this. Mm -hmm. And I argue that there's actually a few other reasons um, okay. why why individuals, and that, and even if it is, even if this does play a part in it, this kind of longing for for lost loved ones, it doesn't necessarily discount what they were doing, um, mm -hmm. or it doesn't it doesn't mean that we we should take it less seriously. Right, because this is a topic that tends to be taken not very seriously, right? Like yes, people, I mean, yes. <laughs> seances, it's all sort of out there and not, like especially on TV shows, movies, like people don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, but so here's a moment where people want to take it seriously. And in doing so, how what are the methods through which they're trying to do this? Like how, what is the science of it? And how are they trying to prove these things? Yeah, so well, in the, in the book itself, I, in kind of a series of chapters in which they, they kind of document some of the the tactics they try to uh, they try to take, <laughs> and just so you know, my my daughter's here yes. on my lap, so the <laughs> the the whimpering child is <laughs> that's who she is. Anyway, her name is Tam Tam. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, and so like, uh, and I began actually with, um, and and actually the, this the steps they take to make it into a science. Um, I find particularly interesting because it, it in many ways reflects what these individuals believed were the steps one needed to take to move something from being like a more kind of spiritual or personal endeavor to something that was much more science that could be backed by kind of university and academic knowledge. But it, and in that respect, it actually shows in kind of an interesting way and from an unusual angle shows how, um, how science is go from being considered uh, marginal to more accepted. And so, but in this case, the 
uh, it is never accepted. So it's right. constantly in this kind of science in the making, as I put it in the book. Right, it, it, that seems to have a, a relevance right now because so much of discussions around science, people say, well, look at when science is wrong and science has been proven to be wrong later. And here's a case where you have the science of a community engaging in something that, that like they want to prove something that isn't there. Like, so, so is this a case that it might be damaging to science and the community for engaging in this sort of stuff? That's an interesting question. Um, I think a lot of the kind of the backlash of, uh, and and this actually another interesting is kind of this also kind of is just before another um, another era when um, increasing challenges to the scientific framework. Um, usually, when I guess when maybe the common person thinks about the post-war era, particularly the post-war era of kind of after 1940, they look at they kind of assume that kind of science is well established, and as like other as other historians uh, like particularly like Michael Gordon, he, he wrote this he wrote this book called um, uh, about the kind of the birth of the modern fringe that actually happened in the post-war era. So this is kind of another instance where um, there were individuals who were trying to kind of push at the boundaries of science itself, and uh, and that in turn uh, not only caused dissension among the people who were doing it, but also, yeah, from those outside it. And often, uh, easily enough, when you when you read books, particularly after, say, the closing of Duke University with J.B. Ryan, uh, which happened in the 1970s, uh, there's a kind of a almost a dramatic change in tone. It goes from kind of taking it sort of seriously and to kind of dismissing it. And it, and this dismissal is, I think, a product of trying to um, trying to kind of maintain those those supposedly clear-cut boundaries. Right, right. So, so in the subtitle, there's two big words there with transnational agenda. Let's start with transnational. <laughs> um, what is the transnational element of this? Because sort of so far you've talked about, seem, seems to be a very localized group of people. Mm -hmm. So where's the transnational element come into the, the book? Well, it's a small group of people, but they're actually, they're, they, so there's individuals in, at, particularly look at Eric Dingwall, uh, who was, he was a person who was involved with the British Society of Psychical Research quite a lot. And he was actually initially sent to the U.S. to investigate on behalf of that British Society, at least say, some of this phenomenon that this network was looking at. And then, uh, and then there's individuals from Canada. Um, so you have uh, T. Glenn Hamilton from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, you have Jenny O'Hara Pincock um, from Kitchener, uh, or St. Catherine, sorry. And then... Uh, and then you have uh, individuals who are kind of working at the nexus of the in the American society, and particularly uh, two individuals, uh, Leroy Crandon and his his wife. Well, her actual name is uh, Mina Crandon, but she adopts the pseudonym of Marjorie, and now has become kind of she's more known as Marjorie than as Mina um, now. But and they become kind of at the center of this in many ways, kind of drawing these figures all together hmm. in a kind of interesting ways. And how do they do that? I mean, 1920s, and it seems like if there's one person or two people in each spot mm -hmm. uh, that potentially could be marginalized within their own space, it, it seems like maintaining that network would be a difficult thing to do if there's no support locally. So I'm just curious about the process through which even they find each other. Well, interestingly enough, actually, what I contend is actually the reason why they were making these transnational links was actually to strengthen their authority. Mm -hmm. um, because as, like, as other historians of science and tech have pointed out, starting with Bruno Latour, is that, um, uh, that it's, 
To make a science successful, you must make it seem universal uh, and a almost ahistorical. Um, and so you must re kind of remove it from the messy process of humans. <laughs> right. um, and by kind of making these transnational links, it makes their study kind of placeless um, without kind of context. And this is important where um, uh, they feel for establishing these links. Um, and so each of, each of these individuals kind of came to this study separately, but they, um, they begin to be kind of drawn closer, uh, not only by particular mediums, uh, so individuals who are actually making contact or who are kind of recognized as um, people who are kind of adept at making those kind of connections between two worlds, as you say, um, but also through spirits, um, which is, interesting and my treatment of spirits is probably a little bit different than um, than what you'd find in most books about this subject in what way like why like why does that why is that particular element so unique here well it's because I refuse to be kind of adamant about whether or not I kind of ignore the question of whether or not they are real right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I instead actually look at what they're actually doing within within the space of the sounds and within this and how they're actually thought of by the individuals who, uh, whether you believe that they're there or not, they believe that they're there, and they believe that they're interacting with these, with these, this phenomenon in some way. And so I, uh, again, I kind of I, I borrow from Donna Haraway's idea of kind of subjective knowledges, and um, and I try to understand how that comes to be, and and in in the process, you can you realize actually how much hinges on these on these spirits on these these entities and and they are kind of they become kind of interesting enough kind of key actors um, within this within this kind of uh, kind of larger group right I guess it's one of those things where in a world of alternative facts like it doesn't matter if they're real it just matters if people think they're real <laughs> like it's a, and that's where the power and the meaning comes from yeah. and whether or not they're real or not is is incidental to the rest of the process yes yeah and and, and you know, a, contemporarily, we, we talk about, we live in the era of alternative facts, mm -hmm. but we've been living in an era of alternative facts for quite some yeah. time now, as many historians, uh, you know, would, would acknowledge. Mm -hmm. So the other part of this is the gender uh, element, and this is something that I, I mean, for as little as I know about the topic, this is a, <laughs> another element of, of what I know little about, and, and in terms of how a space like this could be gendered in a way that, that is, is notable and, and speaks to how the process played out. So I'm just wondering, in what way does this get gendered and what are the ramifications of that? Well, um, I'm actually not the first scholar to recognize that this is, this becomes kind of very implicated within kind of gendered understandings. Mm -hmm. um, Alex Owen uh, wrote this like kind of pivotal work uh, that looked at 19th century spiritualism, for instance, and kind of identified uh, the characteristics of the medium, this person kind of making these contexts, as in line and almost in perfect parallel with ideals of the of the perfect woman, um, or femininity, and um, you know, so like passive, uh, intuitive, emotional, irrational, in connection with the body, but not so much the mind. You know, so these are all. Um, these are all elements that come out to play within this um, as well, but it has a kind of an added significance in the process of these individuals kind of attempting to make this into a science, um, in that the way that kind of scientist is coded at this time is 
kind of intrinsically uh, coded in a kind of a masculine sense uh, in it. And so uh, these ideals of kind of objectivity, impersonality, rationality, knowledge, authority are all coded uh, in particular ways that kind of connote or suggest who is what uh, bodies, what people are able to do this kind of science and what uh, people are not, and what people who make the best subjects as well, best scientific subjects. Okay, and is that part of the process through which it would be accepted or dismissed, and, and is that really just a means to an end, the, the, to gender it in that way? Well, this, yeah, it becomes kind of a tactic uh, for making it, again, like much like these kind of transnational links, it, this becomes another tactic that is employed to try and make it seem like uh, more like a science. Uh, the difficulties, they, they come up with a number of difficulties, however. Uh, one is that actually, and even since the late 19th century, despite these kind of efforts to make it into uh, kind of a more scientific study, uh, women are very engaged with this, um, with this kind of uh, search for paranormal. And they, are, and actually at the very beginning of spiritualism, they are key. They are at the, like, the crux of it. And because, ironically, it's because women are kind of coded as the perfect medium. Um, they become very important to this project. But uh, what happens is they become so key to it, um, and particularly with the kind of like changing ideas of gender roles within the 1920s and 30s, uh, and particularly because of the kind of the strong personalities of some of these mediums who are supposedly supposed to be passive, uh, but are not, it raises challenges to trying to kind of present these kind of binaries of you have a scientific man studying the uh, kind of a feminized scientific subject. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to monopolize the time here. So I'll, I'll allow our crowd here, our audience, if you have questions, now be aware that we've done a hundred of these and I've never let anybody else ask a question before. Uh, so this is a big deal for me to turn over, turn over the show. So if anyone has any questions, please, uh, please feel free. Well, I, I guess the uh, mentioned in the methodology that you're talking about, just taking, taking the spiritual sensation as as given. Um, how does that kind of how does that work? Are there sort of patterns you can see in terms of the way people perceive these things, or and are they? Um, I mean, it's transnational, but are there are there ways that people tend to? perceived spirits in the U.S. as opposed to Canada or Europe? Um, that's a very interesting question. Interestingly enough, the kind of the theories and experience, experiences of individuals who are kind of, you know, who are participate within seances, it can, it was very, very extremely so um, in terms of, and that personality actually was, that it was in some ways important because the more kind of particular an experience was, the more it actually suggested that they were actually contacting uh, individual, you know, real live individuals. Yeah. So if someone uh, like Jenny O'Hara Pincock, for instance, like one of her first experiences that convinced her that this was real was, or that was something worthy to study, was uh, that she was, her, her um, husband was an osteopath, and she, and he supposedly, as a spirit, gave her a treatment that was exactly the way he would have done in life. And that, so that experiences like these were what kind of convinced her that this is like, no, I'm actually contacting an individual that I knew in life. You know, he touched me in this particular yeah. way that no one other, no one else could. Um, 
and so it's yes, yeah, so there is this kind of particularity to it, um, which also kind of becomes problematic when you're trying to make it into a science, because then there are others who are insisting that you no, know, we have to make this measurable. Um, we need to be able to graph it and be able to identify patterns and uh, block out any like um, you know any kind of external influences uh, in order to try and kind of boil this down and see what what is the kind of the at the root of all of this. So there is this kind of constant tension between real and unreal, or, or between kind of the particular and the universal that's happening. The, the one thing, but in terms of kind of suggesting like national experiences within all of that, is it becomes extra fascinating because the actually the main spirit, or one of the main spirits at the kind of the center of this is actually was um, a Canadian. Uh, and he uh, was uh, like a, a worker in life. He died in a railroad accident. And it is only after that that he becomes very adept at the scientific method, which is interesting. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> but and it, it depends on kind of where he is. Uh, so where it kind of where his Canadianness becomes more emphasized. Um, and so you have this group in Winnipeg who experience Walter, as he was known. Um, and, she, and he was actually the, 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 the brother of, of Mina Clandon, or Marjorie, um, in the States, who was also born in Canada, but had moved to the U.S., to Boston. Um, and he, uh, so like the way, like, uh, T. Glennon Hamilton, for instance, kind of uh, identifies uh, traits, uh, characteristic um, ways of speaking and 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 uh, in carrying on, but he identifies as distinctly Canadian, um, and it's kind of it's in a weird sort of way, a kind of a way of him claiming claiming ownership, at least in part, of that spirit, um, but also a way of him again identifying these particularities that somehow kind of prove that this person is real. Um, so it's like the, cult, the culture of. Yes, exactly. Right, and that becomes very important to. Um, but yeah, but it, then it, and it's it is is adopted at the same time as this kind of attempt to yeah, is try and make it seem universal as well. I was just thinking in Mexico, there are all these very very old legends about spirits like that. It comes out of the history of the conquest and various things like that. I'm just wondering if there is that in it. Yeah, Walter, the, the railway worker, but are there any that are older, older mythologies? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. They identified. It depended on, depended on what seance you went to, like a, of what kind of mythology they were going. Uh, one one aspect of this, and it becomes very racialized as well. And this is, um, and it, this was a very typical thing right from the 19th century, is to have indigenous spirits um, come into the seance, and they suggested this sort of kind of like universal historical. So Black Hawk, who was an indigenous resistance um, uh, leader, he comes back at one point in this, and he, he becomes, he plays this kind of key role within the seance itself. And even though he's kind of well-known in the 19th century, he, the way he speaks is kind of is a way of suggesting this um, kind of historical, mytho mythological element to it. Um, but again, but it has these very like intense 
you know, obviously racialized overtones to it as well. Um, but it, it reflects what largely white sitters uh, imagined indigenous people to be, not, not so much what indigenous people actually were. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just curious about your sources. Can you talk a little bit about where you found out <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a good many of the sources come from the University of Manitoba. They have actually one of the most impressive collections of paranormal research in, in the world, I would say, that compares to uh, what, what's in, in Cambridge as well. Um, so the Society of the British, the British Society has most of its records there. Um, so some of the images that you see in this book um, were actually of Eric Dingwall, uh, so he commissioned these photographs and they are now in those archives. And then the University of Waterloo has Jenny O'Hara Pippincock's collection um, of papers as well, and there's kind of extensive notes. And she was more most interested in a medium named uh, William Carthuser, uh, who, uh, and he actually, before he met Jenny O'Hara Pippincock, he had a joint seance with Marjorie. Um, and so there's yeah interesting kind of interplays and connections happening on that on that front, um, and there are people who kind of know both of them um, as well, and they definitely know one another uh, during this this time. And so it's uh, yeah so it's it's this uh, so there's that collection, and then there's the uh, the ASPR uh, the American Association is actually still in operation, um, and they have uh, their records in New York. Uh, actually, I think it's, I, I remember being told it was like nearby where John Lennon was shot. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's, um, and yeah, and, that, and that, I think that was actually my most interesting research experience I have ever had in my life, <laughs> going there. Um, because like unlike at University of Manitoba or, or University of Waterloo, um, uh, these people, these individuals are carrying on a lineage of, of these research and they, and they are still kind of an advocates uh, for paranormal research. So, and have and very definite opinions about some of its history as well, which again kind of posed a few challenges here and there. Well, it's interesting, like, to have an experience like that, like, these interesting research experiences in writing about something like this, mm -hmm. like, just personally dealing with this subject matter, was that difficult at any level? Uh, yeah, I've had a number of people, like, come up to me and, like, ask me, like, can you connect me to my grandmother? <laughs> 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 or do you have any, like, more recently, do you have any tips? Um, I want to hold a seance. Uh, yeah. Do you have any tips? <laughs> <laughs> And, and I, my, my answer is like, no, actually, I'm the wrong person for you to ask. I'm, a, I'm an academic. I, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I have, I, I'm, I'm irreligious, you know, like, so I don't, I don't have, um, anyway, like, I don't have any kind of connection in that regard. Uh, and so sometimes it is interesting in writing on that subject because uh, sometimes individuals kind of gravitate towards you hoping for that that I myself may hold some right. secrets, and unfortunately, uh, and as dull as it may seem, I don't. <laughs> but, we, but people want answers, Beth. People yes. Want <laughs> yeah. Clear, definitive answers on these sorts of issues. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm curious about the end date of 1940. Um, 1918, clean start date, I understand that. 1940 is not quite as clean of an end date. Yes. Um, so I'm just a little curious as to why you went there and what, what that decision-making process was. Yeah, so it wasn't actually, you, you, you suppose that it was because of the beginning of World War II that right. I pulled the plug on all of this. Um, it was 
It was actually because some key actors within the within this network uh, actually died, <laughs> oh, okay. and they started dying off in the early 1930s, either dying or kind of um, uh, kind of backing away from okay. from this this study uh, for various reasons. And so, yeah, 1940 is the day is the year that uh, Leroy Fandon dies, um, and uh, uh, Glenn, uh, Hamilton died 1935. Um, and in many ways, the, the kind of the individuals that made this network happen within this, this moment in time um, begins to kind of unravel and, and fall apart. So the movement itself sort of, like, so it's the, the movement is, is, the people are essential to the movement and the network, and nobody picks up the torch once they're gone to do it. Yes, at least in terms of this network. Um, okay. So sometimes, like historians, we like to like pretend that it's like, oh well, the reason why I'm stopping is because it all ends yeah. <laughs> um, right now, yeah. and that's not the case. Um, for instance, like interest in paranormal research would have like other resurgences later on uh, in the 1960s, the 1980s, even. Um, but this network in particular that I was looking at seems to kind of unravel. Okay. And do the, do the people themselves, once they're gone, I, I'm curious about this, this, sort of the celebration of death and sort of the mythology of it, it seems to me that the, the people themselves who are studying it could then be almost held up as figures for people who engage in seances and, and like, like people, like they would look at them and say they're, they're, we're involved in the world and in this world and studying it in a way and now I want to engage with them in a seance sort of thing you know what I mean like it, did, did that happen is there a legacy of them so within the community within the seance community like, like so even though they're dead the network is sort of filled, like coming apart are they still celebrated figures or are they celebrated figures within that community so that's interesting so in one of uh, the chapters near the end I actually talk about spirit scientists and this, uh, again, I, I kind of point at this as like maybe kind of one more instance of um, this kind of seance or this uh, the unraveling of this sci science is because the spirits you you start losing um, clarity on who is experimenting with whom, <laughs> yeah. and so these so uh, a number of of these uh, so William Crooks for instance uh, and he's kind of held up as the kind of the um, preeminent uh, sexual researcher that began he was a, a kind of a very well known chemist uh, celebrated uh, 19th century scientist to this day um, the Crooks too was uh, due to this to this person uh, but he was also very interested in sexual research and. Uh, and he ends up dying just before the war begins, but he comes back fairly soon afterwards. So like mid-1920s, he begins reappearing in a number of these seances. And he becomes a key actor in a number of the seances that this book examines. Um, and, and he is yeah, conducting experiments, um, uh, kind of giving advice in terms of kind of experimental controls, um, De developing uh, spiritual technology that the the other the, the the real life people don't quite get, but but they uh, they try to kind of figure out what what exactly he's doing. Um, you know, so it's it's yeah, so it becomes very be very interesting. But it kind of a, uh, it does signal that uh, that the, yeah, these people who have passed on are still yeah. kind of active players mm. within this. Mm. And then just finally. Um, in, in terms of sort of the modern ramification, I'm always interested in how we can use stuff today, right? And, and what does the book and what does this moment in time tell us 
about the way we look at science and how we try to, non-scientists particularly, how we can try and understand science, look at science, and then use it to inform ourselves in looking at the world around us. Yes. Uh, well, it does, for one, it shows you like how science can be kind of swallowed up in culture and then kind of spit out again um, in interesting ways. Um, and I, I said that without kind of thinking because actually women are actually spewing paranormal substance. Um, <laughs> you know, so there is kind of a literal connection that I didn't initially mean, but anyway. <laughs> um, but there is, there's also um, uh, one thing that I found interesting. Um, so like there's been like over like 30 years of research of why, uh, why certain STEM fields are having difficulty including women uh, within their fields. And most people probably would look at my book and like not think immediately that this is something that could speak to that. Um, but one thing that I've, and weirdly enough, as, as I've increasingly been asked, you know, how do we get more women in STEM? And I'm like, I'm a humanist. I'm not sure yeah. if I'm the person you should be asking, but okay. <laughs> um, but it's at the same time, it does actually, by studying this kind of un, this science unmade or this kind of failed science, uh, this science in the making, um, you get actually a very clear sense of these kind of embodied prerequisites for making scientific claims, mm. uh, for kind of claiming knowledge, uh, claiming uh, ideals of rationality. Um, and these, and, and they become, the way they're performed, um, because, yeah, because this is sort of like, uh, Bruno Latour would refer to science as a black box, and this is a box that has been, is left open, right. and so you get to see all of those kind of messy interactions, and, and it becomes glaringly apparent, even almost in a cartoonish sort of way, of how gendered all of these prerequisites are, um, how racialized these prerequisites are, like how, um, and so yeah, and it, it, it begins to kind of open up that, that conversation that maybe it's not just a matter of women leaning in more, it's to become more uh, a part of STEM that is actually something that's much more systemic about how we understand knowledge, how we understand rationality. Um, and, and I think this book actually has something to say about that. Sure, and does that challenge the idea of the objectivity of science? That, I mean, those barriers and the, the way it's systematically uh, set up in this way, that maybe it's not that objective that it, it leads to a subjectivity based on who is participating in the process and the way in which they look at the world. Yeah. It's interesting because like all my friends who are scientists, like they completely recognize that they're humans okay. <laughs> and they have feelings yeah. and emotions and they can be subjective and they get up in the morning and have bad days. Um, but there is this kind of idea of science that it is kind of completely objective, that is universal, yeah. that is... Um, I want it to be objective. <laughs> like, we all want it to be objective. Yeah. Yes, but there's limits to that, sure. right? You know, um, as, you know, and if any historian of science would be able to tell you, you know, all these kind of messy processes of when we just kind of got it completely wrong and, you know, someone else had to kind of step in and say, like, well, actually, let's rethink it in this way. Um, you know, so because we're humans, we just have a tendency to... Um, make mistakes or go down wrong paths and um, and so this is not necessarily kind of attack on science uh, or saying that science should not be believed you know I'm I'm kind of a geek of uh, obviously amateur but you know like obviously kind of like uh, various scientisty things but at the same time you know yeah it's just kind of this acknowledgement that it's it is a product of humans and it's a product of culture at the same time so it can never be as kind of pristinely clean as we'd want it to be 
Well, again, the book is Science of the Seance, Transnational Networks, and Gendered Bodies in the Study of Psychic Phenomena, 1918 to 1940, through UBC Press. Paperback is out. Buy the book. Right, that's the message, right? <laughs> so there you have it. My conversation with Beth Robertson, author of Science of the Seance, Transnational Networks, and Gendered Bodies in the Study of Psychic Phenomena, 1918 to 1940. We would like to thank everyone who came out to the book launch and those who asked questions. We appreciate that, as always. And, of course, our thanks to Black Squirrel Books for being such gracious hosts. And they didn't ask me to do this, but it is a really cool store if you're, if you're in Ottawa or if you're ever in town and you get a chance to go, it's this really cool used bookstore and the basement just blew my mind when I went down there. Uh, just books and books and books. It's a really cool spot. So we thank them for their hospitality on a cold and miserable spring night in Ottawa. And of course, our thanks to Beth Robertson for coming on this show. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it is historyslam at gmail.com Twitter. Is that Dr. Shawnee Fever? And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.